Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist Church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit EagleDriveBaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be. It feels like forever since we've been here. It's only been a couple weeks. Uh, appreciate the prayers. Uh, last week, I, I went kind of on a little preacher's retreat. I went down somewhere in kind of the South Texas area. Um, it's actually a place called Schulenburg. Anybody ever heard of Schulenburg? Okay, I hadn't heard of it either. They said it's the middle of nowhere and the middle of everywhere. It's an hour and a half from Houston, San Antonio, and Austin. So it's like right there in the middle of the big metropolis of all those, those cities. But uh, it was a ranch for ministry leaders and preachers, and it was really just a time for me to kind of get away and just let God pour into me. And I was very thankful for that. And uh, it was kind of a good, good time to just uh, do a lot of studying and reading and, and uh, trying to help me uh, clear my mind um, going forward. So uh, we're back in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And again, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and as we've talked about thus far in the study, uh, Ephesians 1 through 3 is all doctrinal. It's all about our theology, understanding who we are in Christ. And then chapter 4 through 6 is the application of it all. And as we've hit on in the, in the previous two studies here in chapter 4, what Paul is doing is he is addressing unity. Over the next several chapters, one of the key words in Ephesians is the word walk. He's trying to get us to walk in the way that a Christian should walk or apply the truths that God has given us from his word. So chapter 4 primarily is about our walking in unity. Uh, chapter 5 is about walking in purity. The end of 5 and the first part of chapter 6 is about walking in harmony, and then it's about walking in victory. And uh, I, I think I might have said this a few weeks ago, but I think too many Christians in the Christian life are trying to run before they learn how to walk. And I, and I say that to say this, I think we're trying to do too much before we truly understand what God wants us to do. Uh, no child, no toddler just starts out running before they learn how to walk, right? Walking is a learned state, and same is true in our Christian life. We must learn how to walk as a child of God, to do what God has called us to do. Uh, now on the subject of unity, we've asked several questions concerning it. We'll ask a few more tonight. But why is unity so important in the local church? Why is unity so important in the local church? Anyone? If you don't have it, the church will split. Yeah, that's very good. What else? Why is unity so important in the local church? Anyone? One body in Christ, yes. What else? Anybody? Come on, a couple weeks ago you guys did so well. Chaos is not of God. Chaos is not of God, that's good. It's deep. You want to preach? Okay, no, we're, we don't believe in that, so I'm just letting you guys know. About eight o'clock. What? Tune in about 8 o'clock when everyone's gone. <laughs> that's funny. Brother Alan? Yeah disunity will cause the work of Christ to not go forward. That's good. What else? Why is unity in the body of Christ so important? Think about it. All going the same way? Yeah. It's very important if, you know, uh, I, I think of it like, you know, rowing a ship. You know, if, if, if one side is rowing one way, another side is rowing another way, all you're going to be doing is going in circles, right? And that's what happens in a church. There's a lot of disunity. Instead of all going the same direction and trying to advance God's kingdom, it's about our kingdom. It's about what we want. 
Um, yeah, that's very good. Any, anything else? Why is unity so important in the body of Christ? Anything else? Anyone else? When you have unity, you can encourage each other. Yeah, when you have unity, you can encourage each other. Okay, what are, what are some um, difficulties that you've seen in churches that are disunified? What are some hindrances, I guess, that in, in a church that is disunified? Fighting. fighting? Okay, yeah, definitely is fighting. Backbiting, yeah, yeah. Never happens here, right? All right, good, very good. What? Yeah, that's, that's very true. You, a lot of times you don't see people getting saved because people are at odds with each other. What, Justin? Murmuring and complaining, yes. You know, we hit on a lot of this a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, there's a lot of marks of disunity, and there's a lot of reasons that the gospel doesn't go forward. I mean, Brother Don was hitting that, um, you know, point blank that, it's hard for people to get saved when we're all fighting, when there's division, when there's disunity within the local body of church. Um, you know, unity is a huge deal, especially to Jesus. Turn, turn back to John chapter 17 before we get into Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. And I just want to hit on this very quickly, but in John chapter 17, verse number 20, Jesus even prayed for unity with his disciples. Why do you think Jesus prayed for unity amongst his disciples? What? It's important, yeah. Why else? Why do you think? Do I think they're better than someone else? Yeah. And really a lot of it too is so that his message could truly go forward. And unity really is about oneness. And we're going to hit on that here in a few minutes. But verse number 20, it says, this is Jesus' prayer for them. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So if we're not one in Christ, it's going to be very hard for the world to get the message of the gospel, get the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that thou may be one. He's talking about unity. Even as we are one, going the same direction with the same goal in mind, not 15 different goals, but the same goal, same um, uh, direction. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, that, thou, uh, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me, and hast, um, or ha- uh, hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And he goes on and talks about that. But go back to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Let me read these first few verses tonight. The Bible says in verse number 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm going to reference this in just a minute, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then verses 4 through 6, this is great. Uh, Seven times is this word one used. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us for the next few minutes as we study your word. God, I pray that you'd help us to realize these very important truths that we're going to see that Paul is teaching about this gospel-centric unity and about this oneness in unity, understanding uh, some very simple applications from your word. And Lord, I, I, I love you. And Lord, I'm thankful that uh, there is a good mark of unity within our church. 
and not a spirit of divisiveness. But Lord, we have to understand that unity in your word is a given, but unity is something that we must continually fight for because it's very easy to become disunified. Someone gets upset, someone uh, messes up, and we, we attack them instead of loving them and being gracious toward them. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd help keep that spirit of unity alive in your church and that we truly go forward by your grace. And Lord, I, I think of the kids that are in the back tonight, Lord, and the teenagers and the great start we've had thus far to Truth Trackers. And I pray that you to continue to bless. Lord, we think of the ones that have been saved recently and the ones getting baptized this Sunday, excited about that. And Lord, I pray that you to again be with us the next few minutes as we study your word. You'd help us to draw some very important truths from this study. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. One of the common denominators of any action that disrupts unity in the church is selfishness. Selfishness. Think about that. It may be in your notes, it may not be in your notes, but just think about that. A common denominator of any action that disrupts unity in the church is selfishness. Before I go deeper, what do you think I mean by that statement? Let me say it again. One of the common denominators of any action that disrupts unity in the church is selfishness. What do you think I mean by that? You're doing it for yourself. Doing it for yourself? Yeah, that's good. What else? Linda? No, you're just agreeing? Yeah, it's, all, it's supposed to be about me, right? Yeah, sure, okay. It's what it seems like in some places. Justin? That's good. Sometimes we do things just to get recognized. Maybe we've been that person, but we've probably all seen people that have done things just to be recognized. But again, whose church is it? It's God's church. It's Jesus' church. It's, it's uh, yes, it's, it's, it's his church. So one of the reasons that disrupts unity is selfishness, thinking that, we are here for our purpose, for our glory, to advance our kingdom, for us to be known. But is that what we're here for? No, we're here for him. And again, it seems like everything I've been hitting on lately, the Lord keeps driving this point home to me in my life. It goes to the fact of control. It's giving up control of a situation, giving it over to God. Because sometimes in my life, I've been very selfish, and this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And God's saying, no, 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 this is what I want. And because being selfish, you think about in a relationship, in a marriage, if I am very selfish, which I'm pro I probably am 95% of the time, but if I'm selfish in a relationship with Amanda, it's going to create unity, isn't it? See? She's, she's agreeing. We have a very unified relationship because I'm very selfish. No, 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 we don't. If I'm very selfish, our relationship is not going to be unified. Our relationship is going to be disunified. And again, that, that principle happens in life. It happens in relationships. It happens in the church because it's one person trying to get their way instead of in a church situation realizing that it's not about me. It's all about who? It's all about him. I've been saying that for really the past four years. It's not about me. It's all about him. And we have to have that mindset that everything that we do is not about us. It's all about him. I was listening to a, a preacher today on a podcast, I think it was, and, and he said, there is nothing that demonstrates immaturity or unhealthiness more than Christians creating division with other Christians. That was very good. There is nothing that demonstrates immaturity or unhealthiness more than Christians creating division with other Christians. And yet, how often do we do that? How often are we divisive with other believers, with other Christians? And all we're doing is we're showing our own immaturity. And we're creating division. And I said this a few weeks ago, but 
Disunity is really carnal Christianity that is spiritually immature. Carnal Christianity that is spiritually immature. And going back to reference what we talked about, Paul starts, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. What he's doing is, the next word he says, beseech. What he's doing is he's beseeching, he's pleading, he's begging with the church here at Ephesians, or Ephesus, the, the, the Christians here. He's beseeching them on the basis of grace. Remember I gave the analogy, the illustration of sometimes we can use force to get our point across. But what is more effective if I'm driving home a point with force or if I'm trying to be gracious? What do people typically respond better to? Grace or force? <laughs> force, right? No, grace. Exactly. Now, now, understand, there are times when maybe we have to be hard and we have to, you know, correct in love. But how often are we only using force to get our point across instead of grace? You know, and I, I've thought about that in my own life. You know, there's been times where something has messed up in my life or I was listening to another message and uh, the, the preacher was talking about there was a time where uh, he was living in California at the time and he went to McDonald's and at that time, I don't know if it's all McDonald's or not. I don't go there very often anymore. It used to be my favorite place, but I've grown up. Thank the Lord. Now it's Chick-fil-A. Praise God. Um, but anyway, uh, he said they had, a, they had a new rule there where um, you can only get like two sauces. Any, other, any, any extra sauce, you had to pay like 25 cents. And he just made this huge fuss. He's like, I'm not paying for any other sauces. And he just like went off on the people in the drive-thru and it made it very uncomfortable for them. And then he had this feeling of satisfaction when he left. Until his wife got on him in the car later, like, what good did that do? And he realized, he's like, yeah, it didn't really do much good at all. But how often do we do that? We have to get our point across. We're going to make someone cry. We're going to show him, show him or show them or show her or whatever, the, how, how we are just unhappy about the situation. I, and I think about it in relationship to food sometimes because uh, we've probably all seen people that have done that in a restaurant environment or maybe we've been those people and there's certain people I remember growing up, I despised going out to restaurants with them because I knew everything was going to be critical. They're going to try to get a free meal. I was like, no, I don't want to go up with these people because they, they do every. Oh, I don't like this. Uh, my burger is like, it's only well done and not super well done. It's like, seriously, just it, whatever. And sometimes, you know, we're going off on the server. It's not their fault. They're just giving us the food. But again, the point I'm trying to make is how often are we using force instead of grace? You think about in our own families, those that have raised children. What's been the most effective way of raising your kids? Forcing them to do something or on the basis of grace? Pleading with them. The, the illustration I gave a few weeks ago, imagine if I were you know, in, in the sense of giving or serving and I just go off on you guys and tell you how horrible you are and how you know, worthless you are and everything like that. And now you need to start serving. Now, some of you might start because you're all guilty and this and that, but what if I pleaded with you? Hey, we really need more money because the building is falling apart. Literally, you can see, and this isn't the situation, but you can see water falling down <laughs> from the ceiling because the roof is caving in. We need more money. We need more people to serve because we have 15 kids in the nursery and one person in there. That's not the situation tonight, I don't think, right? Okay, good. There's only 14. But anyway, <laughs> imagine if I was forcing you to do something. Some might do it, but some might become very um, upset with me. Some might, you know, just, fine, I'll do it, but all it's going to do is create a spirit of disunity, right? But if I'm pleading and if I'm begging on the basis of grace, 
it's going to be much more well-received. And that's the point I'm trying to make, and I know I spent a little bit of time on that. That's what Paul is doing. He's beseeching, he's begging on the basis of grace because he wants them to understand how, how so important unity is. Let me ask this question. I've got a lot of stuff, and I, a lot of stuff that I have to cover, but how does submission come into play when churches are working towards unity? Let me ask that question again. How does submission come into play when churches are working towards unity? You have to be willing to do whatever is asked of you once in the end to Okay, that's very good. Be willing to do whatever is asked of you. Okay, that's good. What else? How, how does submission come into play? What I'm talking about really submitting to the Holy Spirit. How does submission come into play in promoting that spirit of unity? That was very good. Very good. What else? Anyone? Yeah. Like understanding that everybody's trying to grow and that there might be an area that someone else struggles in a little more than you and you can see that. So submit your opinion and just, you know. Yeah. That's good. Again, I mean understanding that eventually they will grow. Eventually they will yeah, exactly. It really just comes down to the fact of giving up my will for someone else. It, kind of like in Philippians chapter two where Paul is saying it's all about others. It's not about yourself, right? It's not about what you want and what the church can do for me. Sometimes, you know, as simple as I'm going to give up my seat for someone else. That might be submission right there. Even though I've sat here for 45 years, bless God. You know, it's just a little thing of just submitting our will for someone else. I mean, Brother Ron, he gave up his seat on Sunday. I appreciate that. Totally messed me up when he was sitting over here. No clue we had a visitor or whatever, but anyway... Uh, that's what you guys need to do some, some Sunday. Actually sit in strange places. And I'll be like, uh, they're not here. What? No, not too strange. Not, not in the back or anything like that. I'm talking about in the auditorium. Anyway, let's go on. Um, now, this question is, is more for yourself, but how has the gospel truly changed you? And I want you to answer it, because if the gospel has truly changed you, then you're going to be motivated based on grace based on serving God because you get to, not because you have to. Again, there are times for correction, times to, to be disciplined by force and stuff like that, but if the gospel has truly changed you and shaped your identity, then you're going to be willing to do whatever God wants you to do, even if it's an uncomfortable situation, right? Or you should be. So again, that, that question, how has the gospel changed you? So let me go on. I'm getting stuck on some things uh, that I need to go past. He continues on, I beseech you that you, what? What are the next two words? Verse 1. Walk worthy. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you called. This word worthy carries the idea of being weighty or heavy or deserving. To walk worthy uh, meant that the Ephesians would act in a united way. They would live in peace in a church with Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Now that's a bold concept right there that a church would act in a united way and live at peace with all men. <laughs> but how often have we seen in a church situation where people are not even at peace with the person sitting next to them, with the person sitting behind them? So if we're not at peace with one another, how do we expect unity to go forward? <laughs> I'm just going to go on right there. <laughs> Never mind. The unity of the Spirit already exists in Christ. We need to understand that. And I think I have this in your notes. 
Our responsibility is not to manufacture unity. Our responsibility is to preserve unity. We cannot create spiritual unity among diverse members in Christ's body, but we can and should maintain the unity that is already created by the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to verse 2 and 3 very, very quickly before we get to 4 through 6, the main point. He says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, striving, working hard to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let me ask this question. How are the characteristics found in verses 2 and 3 useful in maintaining unity in the church? Some of this is review. How are the characteristics found in verse 2 and 3 useful in maintaining unity in the church? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to hate someone that you love, right? I mean, think about that. They contradict itself. I can't hate this person if I'm loving them and showing the love of Christ towards them. And even if someone has done us wrong, if we're truly having love towards one another, some of those petty differences that we have will kind of wash away. Because we'll realize, you know what? At the end of the day, it's not really that big of a deal. What's the most important thing? Advancing the gospel. Making sure God's kingdom is going forward. What else? What are, what are some um, the, of the characteristics found in verses 2 and 3? What are, um, how, how are they useful in maintaining unity of the church? It's very good about loving. What else? Yeah, endeavoring. Okay, so it's endeavor, so it's work. So it's always going to be, you're always going to have to work at it. Yeah. And you're always going to have to be aware of the endeavor. Exactly. And if you fall short, you fall short. Be willing to apologize for it, but always know that there is a gospel. <laughs> well, it is. It's, yeah, she's, she made a great point. It's, it's endeavoring. It's, it's a work. Always working towards that unity and and just, it's, it's the job that she said. And really, I mean, sometimes we have to be the bigger person, right? What I mean is someone might have done us wrong, and we can hold it over their heads, but sometimes the bigger person is just to forgive them and move on, because we know that if we don't, there's going to be disunity. <laughs> there's going to be division. There's going to be dissension. But you don't know what they did to me, Pastor. You're right. Well, what's more important, unity or disunity? Unity. A church is going to truly go forward if it's unified with the same goal, with the same person. So sometimes, yeah, it's working hard to just, you know what? I could really make this a huge deal, and it probably should be, but you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. I love you. Imagine if we all thought like that, if we all acted like that. What kind of difference would our church make? I mean, what kind of uh, impact on our community would we make? Again, even if people have hurt us and done us wrong, instead of trying to get back at them, we showed them grace. And then we go on, verses 4 through 6. The premise of Paul's message here in these verses is about our oneness. This repetition of this word one seven times serves as a reminder that we are one in Christ. Look, if the gospel is to go forward, then there must be unity in the church. Unity is the driving force that helps advance God's kingdom. Unity is not about selfishness. It's about oneness. It's not about selfishness. It's about oneness. It's not about my agenda. It's about his agenda. It's not about my goals. It's about his goals. And if Christ died to create a body of believers to advance his gospel... How can that truly happen if we're more concerned with ourselves than him? 
How can that happen? Get this. If we're more concerned with our differences than our similarities. Think about that. How can unity go forward if we're more concerned with our differences? Look around. Are you guys different? Yes, we're all different, and that's okay. But sometimes we can't get over someone else's differences, can we? Well, they're not like me. They're not the person that I think they should be. I'm sorry, but are you God? If you are, then we need to talk. Because I have some things I want to discuss with you. <laughs> but <laughs> no, we're not. So why are we more concerned about the differences than the similarities? And, and I'm saying that to say this because that's what Paul is addressing here in these verses. Now think about, think about, there's a lot of churches in America, a lot of churches all over the world. And you go into, you can go to a church across the street, you go to a church across the town, you go to a church across the state, and there's probably going to be some differences in that church, Right? But how often do we get hung up on the differences in the church than the similarities? And here's what I mean. Again, sometimes it goes to preferences, right? Now, if their doctrine is off, that's one thing. But if they're still reaching people with the gospel, then does it really matter what kind of music they're playing? I mean, in, in a sense. You might not like that. It might be a preference. But does it really matter if they're still preaching the gospel, trying to reach people with the gospel? No, it doesn't. See, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. What matters and what Paul is talking about is let's focus on our similarities and not just our dis differences. It's easy to focus on how we're different. I can look around right now. You guys are different than me. Some of you have hair. Some of you don't. Some of you have too much hair. You took it off. Thank the Lord. <laughs> but it's easy to focus on that, how we're different instead of how we're the same. And again, if, if we are a Christian, now get this, this is good. If we are a Christian, go back to chapters 1 through 3, we are all in Christ, right? We're all blessed and chosen, accepted and adopted, forgiven, the similarities. So why can't we focus more on that than about our differences? But they, they do this, they wear this, they act like this. Okay, that, that, that's fine, but how are you the same? And, and I'll get to this a little bit later on, but... Here's the great thing. I can go anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, and meet another Christian, and though they might practice their Christianity a little bit different than me, we still have similarities. You know what the similarity is? We're in Christ. And when I get to heaven, they'll be to heaven too. They'll be in heaven too if they're saved, if they're a child of God. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. You know, this unity is not just for the local church, but it's for the family of God as a whole, right? We should all be unified, but how often are we disunified as a family of God? Because we're so focused on each other's differences than the similarities. So notice what he says. There is how many bodies? Two. Very good. I mean one, sorry. Seeing if you're paying attention. There is one body. What we see over these three verses, these seven ones, is really the Trinity working together. The first three are talking about the Holy Spirit. The next three are talking about the Son, Jesus, and the last one is talking about God. But the picture of a body is one of Paul's favorite ways to describe the church. It's a metaphor in a sense, if you will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes into great detail to describe the body of Christ. That's a great study in and of itself. How we're all different, unique, but we're all still part of the body. Again, some might be the hand or the fingers or the arm or the legs or the feet or the eyes or whatever. That's okay. And it's incredibly diverse collection of body parts. 
But without any one member, the body is not complete. If my hand were chopped off, is my body complete? No, it's missing a hand. You've seen people like that where they're missing a limb. Their body is not complete. It's incomplete. Same is true in the local church. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this in depth. But the body is not just a big pile of eyes. That would be weird. <laughs> it's not just a big pile of heads or big pile of feet. A body without hands or eyes or feet is not a complete body. All parts make up the body and all parts are necessary if the body is going to function the proper way. The same is true in the church. All parts make up Christ's church and all parts are necessary if the church is going forward. We don't need to criticize a foot for not being a hand. Understand? Why aren't you acting like a hand? It's not the way God designed the foot to. God designed the foot to help us walk, not to pick up things. Now, some people are weird and they can draw things with their feet. Whatever. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make, and if you can do that, that's awesome. Praise God. I can't even hardly write with my hands. But again, think about the body of Christ as a whole. How often are we more critical because, oh, you should be doing this? Well, maybe God didn't design them to do that. Now, we should be willing to do everything, and I've made that mention many, many times. You know, rather than criticize other people, other churches, for not being like us, we should look at them as different members of our one body, the body of Christ. As I said, I can go to anywhere place in the world, and they might believe in some aspects or interpret the scripture a little bit different than me, but if they're saved, are they part of the body of Christ? Even if they're in China, even if they're in Ethiopia, are they part of the body of Christ? Yes, and what I mean by that is they're part of that, that family of God. Now, God gives us individual local churches, and, and there's the body of that, and that's, that's another discussion entirely. But notice that Paul does not say there's one organization, does he? He says there's one body, one body of believers, one body of Christ. Every person throughout history that has ever accepted the gifts of salvation has been a part of the body of Christ. The essence of a body is that it consists of thousands of cells with one mutually shared life. It is the sharing of life that makes a body different than an organization. The basic fundamental underlying unity of a body exists despite surface divisions. When you travel again and you meet someone, and, I, and I've, I've done this, I, I've, uh, there's been two instances, especially on a plane in the past couple years, where I've met an individual, uh, one was a woman, one was a man, and they, they went to completely different types of churches than I went to. But in talking with them, I realized they were saved. And you know what? That means they were part of the same body of Christ that I was a part of. Even though they, in some aspects, believed some things that were a little bit different, they gave me a clear testimony of salvation, so that, that means they are part of the body of Christ, right? Yes. So we're one. And Paul is trying to promote a unity, not saying we're just all one giant church and worshiping together. That's a completely another lesson you know, for another time. But the body is produced by the extension of one original cell growing until it becomes a full-fledged, mature body. But every cell of which shares that original life, that's the secret of the body. All the parts of it share life together. That's why the church is not just an organization, it's one body. And only the Spirit can produce one body, and that's what it goes on. There is one body and one Spirit. And this is good. The Holy Spirit is that invisible person who's the driving force and power behind the church. The power of church of the church does not lie in how many members we have. 
does it? I mean, we can have 500 members. Does that mean the church is going to be powerful? Because we have 500 more than another church across town? No. The power of the church lies in the Holy Spirit. And His presence and His moving forward. And I love what Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 says, and I read this verse today, and it just kind of like stirred me up. The Bible says, Then He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And that's what it is. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the driving force. The power of the church lies in the Spirit. The Spirit is the true power of the church. And there is only how many spirits? One Spirit. And that is why the truth remains unchangeable. The passing of time does not change it. That is why the church is not dependent on many or few, or how much wisdom is in the membership. It depends on one thing, the Holy Spirit. And the cool thing about this, the same spirit that lives inside of me, since I'm saved, if you're saved, lives inside of you. That's pretty awesome. There's only one spirit, not multiple spirits. If you believe in multiple spirits, then we need to have a talk after church. But if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, then you have the same spirit with someone else across the town or across the globe, if they're truly saved. Now, some people can quench the spirit. And I understand that. But the spirit that lives within us is striving to get us to live in unity with one another. And when we fail, is it the fault of the spirit or is it the fault of the flesh? It's the fault of the flesh. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4 through 13. Because we're living according to our flesh. We're walking according to our flesh instead of walking according to the spirit. And when we truly walk according to the spirit, you know what there's going to be? disunity, right? No, unity. So imagine, imagine, I know it's a crazy concept tonight. Imagine if we as Christians truly walked in the Spirit all the time. I I can't do that. Why not? Why can't we? I don't think any of us have an answer, right? I think we could if we we chose every minute of every day. Yeah, there's going to be times we mess up, and and I get that. There's going to be times where we fall short, but Walking in the Spirit is a continual thing. It's a conscious thing. What what I mean is it's a choice. Just like I choose to walk in the flesh. Just like I choose to do things that I know I shouldn't do, like Paul said. The things that I know I should do, I don't do. (laughs) The things I know I shouldn't do or, you know, whatever, I end up doing them. And how often do we do that? Well, I probably shouldn't do this. It goes against the Bible, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is that walking in the Spirit? No. We've made a conscious choice to walk in the flesh, right? So again, what we're doing is we're creating disunity. Because instead of living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, we're walking according to the flesh. Let's go on. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you're called in one... What's the next word? Hope. Hope. There you go. Good job. One hope of your calling. And we tend to think of hope as an uncertainty in our society, but really, hope can have different levels or degrees of certainty. Uncertain hope is like saying, I I hope I win the lottery. (laughs) Well, there's a 50-50 chance or 95% chance you probably won't. Or, you know, saying something like, I really hope the church buys me that million-dollar putting green that I've been asking for for a couple years. There's a huge uncertainty with that hope, (laughs) which what I mean is there's a great chance it's not going to happen. And that's okay. But the hope that we have in Christ is not uncertain, is it? 
The hope that we have in Christ is certain. We know he's coming back because he's promised it in his word. The hope of his calling. What makes one hope certain while another hope is not certain? The main difference between a wishful hope and a guaranteed hope is the factor or the object of your hope. And as a Christian, who is the object of your hope? Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit. Yes. This is that guaranteed hope because Jesus Christ does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Imagine if you never had to change your wardrobe. That'd be awesome, right? Never mind. It would save a lot of money. Praise God. Same old Bible. Same old Bible, yeah, but... Yeah, but I was, you know, talking about the changing of clothes, you know, that, that would save me a lot of money, you know, if some people didn't have to change all the time. I'm talking about my, my kids, not my wife or anything like that, so. Uh, but yeah, you're, 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 on, you're on the right track too, Brother Wayne. Um, but this, again, this is returning of the, uh, this refers to the return of the Lord to take his church to heaven. The Holy Spirit within each uh, church and believer is the assurance of the great promise that was back in chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, In whom ye also trusted. After that, ye heard the word of truth. What is truth? Jesus Christ is the truth, right? The gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's a great point with that, but we'll, we'll wait for another time. But Paul is suggesting here that the believer who realized the existence of the one body walks in the Spirit and also looks for the Lord's return. And if they're doing that, they're going to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Let's go on. Verse number five. There is one... What's the next word? Verse five. One Lord. One Lord. The transition to the next phrase of this trinity is about the the Son, Jesus Christ. Notice the Apostle Paul does not say one Savior. Though it's true there is only one Savior, everywhere in Scripture it is only when we acknowledge Him as Lord that He becomes our Savior. Therefore, the important issue which Paul centers on is that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? He is our ultimate authority. I think of what uh, Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2. I just want to read it just so I don't mess it up. Um, Wherefore God hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name. Who's the Him he's referring to here? Jesus. Wherefore God hath highly exalted his son Jesus, given him, Jesus, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that who is Lord? Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Jesus, he's our one Lord. He is our ultimate and supreme authority. He is the supreme person of the universe. There is no other Lord. There will never be another Lord. Buddha is not Lord, is he? No, Jesus is Lord. That's why Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among, given among men whereby we must be saved. Yeah, I got tongue-tied and started speaking in tongues. Uh, but neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. The only way we're saved is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Right? on the cross. Again, Jesus is Lord, not Buddha, not Caesar, not anyone else. And if we're saved, we all have the same Lord, the same master. And we're getting our orders from him. That's what Paul is referring to. Let's go on. We're running out of time. One Lord, one faith. One faith. Every Christian that has ever been saved has been saved the same way. 
Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, right? You can't be saved any other way. If you think you have, you don't know the scriptures. There's one faith. There is one settled body of truth deposited by Christ into his church. And this is the faith that Jude called uh, when it says, the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Look, the early Christian recognized a body of basic doctrines that they taught, guarded and committed to others in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Christians may differ in some matters of interpretation and church practice. Listen to this. But all true Christians agree on the faith. And to depart from the faith is to bring about disunity from the body of Christ. That's why I I am heavy in my preaching on theology, because I want you to understand the faith, the doctrine of the Word of God. Understand what God's Word says. Again, our methods may change, but that's okay, right? As long as the faith does not change. As long as the doctrine does not change. As long as the Word of God does not change. I had a, seems like about every couple weeks I have an hour and a half conversation with my dad, and it's good conversations, but, and that's the thing, you know, I, I, I guess I've matured in some ways in my life over the past several years because I used to look at individuals or churches with, I don't know, disdain, despise, criticism, if they did things a little bit different than, than I did. But really that's wrong. It's, who cares what they're doing? If they're preaching Jesus Christ, people are getting saved, that is the most important thing. Really, isn't it? It is. Because if people are getting saved, glory to God. We'll see them in heaven. I might not like what they're doing, per se, or some of the, the, the methods that they're using, or uh, some of the ministries that they have, but really, if they have the same faith, the same doctrine that I have, isn't that what all, all that matters? Yes. And that's what Paul is saying. One faith. Make sure that you understand who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what the gospel teaches. There, are, there is only one set of facts. There is only one faith. There's not many faiths, There's not a faith for the Jews and then a faith for the Gentiles, is there? No, it's one faith. It's not like, well, we just believe the Old Testament and we discount the New Testament, or we just listen to the New Testament and discount the application of the Old Testament. No, it's one faith. It's all God's word, right? Yes. Guys, you're doing good. Let's go on. There is one baptism. I can go deep onto this, but... That's not what Paul is doing here. There's a lot of disunity over baptism and how it should be done. And again, that's another message entirely. But understand, Paul is not referencing water baptism here. That is a symbol. Stay with me. The baptism that Paul is talking about here is the baptism of the Spirit. It's not something we pray for or something that happens to us after our conversion. The baptism of the Spirit happens the moment we are saved, right? The moment we are saved... The Holy Spirit comes to indwell within the believers. That's what Paul is referencing. There is one baptized, being baptized in the Spirit. It's not some magical thing that two years later, it just, it happens to me. Now, the Spirit can fill us up, and we, we pray that the Spirit fills us up, but this one baptism is, baptism is referring to the baptism of the Spirit. When you become a Christian by believing in Jesus for eternal life, one of the first things that happens to you is the Holy Spirit comes to indwell within you. He washes you, He cleanses you, He purifies you of your sin, He provides you with the power to have victory over future sin. And that's a great thing. And this baptism of the Spirit is something which all Christians have. And then finally, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, in you all. 
This phrase, above all, through all, in you all, Paul has been mentioning the essentials. He's mentioned that we are all one body through one faith, through one baptism. We have one Lord who is Jesus Christ, one Spirit who is the Holy Spirit. And he now includes this final member of the Trinity, God the Father. In Old Testament times, it was common belief that different gods, little g gods, were territorial. Each nation and sometimes each clan or tribe within the nation had their own god. So Paul is trying to discount that. So when a nation battled against another nation, it was really a contest between their gods. But Paul is making it clear, there is how many gods? Hundreds? One god. You know, I, think, I can't even help but think of the story of uh, Elijah, you know, on Mount Carmel. Who was he praying to? He was praying to one god, right? He wasn't praying to Baal and all these other gods that can't hear him, that are dead, that are statues. He was praying to the one true living God. And the same God of the Old Testament that Elijah served is the same God of the New Testament, the same God that we serve today. And that's an awesome thing. There is one God and one Father. Paul reminds the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Greek city of Ephesus that this multiple God thing is a bunch of nonsense. There is one God, one Father of all. They both, uh, uh, they both have the same God. And if you're saved and in Christ, and as we discussed in the first three chapters, then you have the same God as any other person who's in Christ. Above all, through all, in you all, speaks of God's love and control. It speaks of his omnipotence. It speaks of his omnipresence, being everywhere at the same time. It speaks of his providence, his care. It speaks of his protection, his provision. It speaks of a deeper relationship that God wants from each of his children. Look, it's true that God is my father. But on a deeper level, if you're saved, God is our father. That's why even when the, the prayer, it doesn't say my father, which is in heaven, or art in heaven, what's it say? Our father. Because if you're saved, he's your father, he's my father, he's her father, your father. It's like we all have the same dad. We all have the same father. If you're saved, you do. This one body refers to the one new man back in chapter 2, verse 15. The body of Christ, the church in this present age. The one spirit refers to the Holy Spirit who indwells the church as a body of believers and every individual believer in the church. One spirit is the reason there is only that family of God. There is not a Jewish Holy Spirit and a Gentile Holy Spirit. There's not a Baptist Holy Spirit and a non-Baptist Holy Spirit. There's only one spirit. And again, I might not agree with some denominations and what they do, but if they're truly saved, they have the same Spirit of God working in them that I have in me. And that's what Paul is really getting at. Let's try to have unity among, not just in our local church, but among all Christians. But again, how often are we so disunified as other Christians? And again, they might not do what we like, and they might do different things and this and that, but we have to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit going forward because, okay, we might have a strong unity in this local body of believers, but what if we're disunified with someone else? Or they're, they're, they're disunified with us and, and we're just fighting every time we're around and someone else sees that in the world that's not saved. Do you think they're probably going to get saved? No, they're not. Do you think it's probably more of a hindrance or a blessing when even in Christendom we're, we're all about fighting about preferences? Do you think that's, that's really going to advance God's kingdom? No, it's not. It's not going to advance his kingdom at all. And really, Satan's winning. He's probably just laughing. You know, I've got them. <laughs> They're focusing on things that aren't important. They're focusing on their differences instead of their similarities. I'm going to close with this illustration. 
I heard this from a friend of mine yesterday, and he, he got it from a commentary that he was reading. He said, imagine there's a picture frame around our church. The church, you know, being the body of believers that are here locally gathered together. Imagine there's a picture frame around our church, and there's a sign above it that says, come in and see what God is like. What would the world see? Would they see a unified body of believers? Because we are a picture of Christ, are we not? So there's a picture frame around us, and we are showing people who God is by how we live. So when we're living disunified, we're saying, well, God's a God of disunity. But no, he's not. God's a God of unity. So, and that's a powerful illustration, powerful truth. Imagine there's a picture frame around our church. And when others are looking at us, what they're doing is they're seeing a representation of God. So what kind of representation are they seeing? Are they seeing the true God? The God of the Bible? Or are they seeing the God that you've fashioned? <laughs> that you've made? Hmm. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation worthy called. What he's saying, I want you to walk in unity. Understand there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you 